Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and this week on Press Advance, the Republicans debate. A bit of a food fight at the family table, if I must say so myself, managed by none other than Fox News. Here's a little bit of what we got to hear. Look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. This is exactly why Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. I am not going to bow to anyone when we have a president of the United States who disrespects the Constitution. Listen, now that everybody's gotten their memorized, pre-prepared slogans out of the way, we can actually have a real discussion now. The, the, the reality and the fact of the matter is... Was that one of yours? Uh, not, not really, Mike, actually. We're just going to have some fun tonight. Do you want a super PAC puppet, or do you want a patriot who speaks the truth? Do you want incremental reform, which is what you're hearing about, or do you want revolution? Anybody that thinks that we can't solve the problems here in the United States and be the leader of the free world has a pretty small view of the greatest nation on Earth. That is incorrect. We can do both, Vivek. We've done both. Last week, I made some predictions. Vivek Ramaswamy is going to come out swinging. That's my thought. Google searches that night for his name are going to spike. And I think he stands a chance to hurt Ron DeSantis. DeSantis's memo leaked this week indicating he was going to swing at Ramaswamy. But I think that that may end up hurting him. Other folks I'm watching closely are Chris Christie. Honestly, Chris Christie has the ability to be a suicide bomber. He has got dirt on Trump, and he's not afraid to use it. And if the Republicans tie themselves to some of Trump's worst traits, this won't be the last time you'll hear about it. Nikki Haley also could bring a unique perspective to the debate stage if she chooses to, because I remember when Elizabeth Warren single-handedly skewered Michael Bloomberg. It will be interesting to see if she uses her voice on that stage. I expect Tim Scott and Vice President Mike Pence to play the adult in the room. But in that steady space, I'm not sure either one of them will win more favor. Time will tell. And of my predictions, I have to say Nikki Haley did use her voice. In a lot of the conversations I'm having with both Republican women and women who identify as Democrats, they're saying they were impressed with her performance. She said things that a lot of us are thinking, including don't just blame the financial situation on the Democrats. It was the Republicans and Democrats who got us here. So there's a lot of talk of who's going to decide this election, and all of us will. But most especially, it's those people who have shown movement. They've voted for both Democrats and Republicans in key states, and one of those key groups is women. So this week, I talked to Jennifer Horn. Jennifer Horn was a longtime Republican strategist before leaving her party. I wanted to get her perspective on this debate and the election, and so I started by asking her to describe the political journey she's been on. It's kind of interesting, and it's kind of, I guess, maybe strange or bizarre at the same time, because I I actually ran for federal office as a Republican. I was uh, chairman of the New Hampshire Republican Party for two terms. I sat on the executive committee of the RNC during that time, and, you know, to have come all the way to this point now where not only am I no longer a Republican, I really look at the Republican Party in its current condition as being a danger to democracy. And I don't say that to be, you know, to sound outrageous. I really believe that the the foundation upon which our democracy is built is threatened by the continued embrace 
not of just Donald Trump, but of Trumpism that we see coming out of the party. Because we're really getting closer and closer to a point where Trump isn't going to necessarily be around anymore. Even if he you know, won an election and spent four more years in the White House, which I can't even begin to imagine. You know, he isn't going to be the leader of the party forever. But I believe that long after he is gone, the party is going to continue to try to advance their uh, elections, their messaging, their fundraising, their goals on what Donald Trump has built as a politician himself. And I think that's dangerous. I grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, and worked in Midwestern politics. So I worked with Kathleen Spelius and worked in Iowa politics and then joined the Obama campaign early. Really motivated. He talked about my hometown of Galesburg, Illinois, but he talked about no red states, no blue states, United States of America. Right. And um, I fundamentally wanted to see that world. My parents were both Republicans. My mom is no longer... Uh, a Republican, but it's been an interesting time in our country to see, you know, I left the White House in 2015 and people are very frustrated and they're frustrated. And people said, oh, there aren't these Obama to Trump voters. I know them. Right. <laughs> there are plenty they're of real. Obama to Trump voters. Yeah. That, and they feel like everything's been taken away from them. Did you watch mm-hmm. the GOP debate? I certainly did. Start to finish. Of course, I was looking at it through the lens of the women I know, who many of whom do have some conservative values and some liberal values. And, you know, I always say I don't agree with my husband on everything. Why would I agree with the political party on everything? Who stood out to those voters? Well, I have to say I was impressed by Nikki Haley. Um, I've been disappointed up until now because I used to be a Nikki Haley fan. And then she, you know, kind of jumped in on the Trump administration. And I remember very clearly the day that she announced her resignation as ambassador to the UN, sitting on a couch next to Donald Trump saying, if this guy runs again, he'll have my support. And from that point forward, in spite of the fact that she clearly doesn't support him, you know, to a great degree anymore, I can't stand with her. I can't be part of a, a pro Nikki Haley effort. But I was impressed by her response to the issue of life and choice and Roe v. Wade, because I felt like it was the first time maybe a genuine Republican Party leader who spoke in a voice that reflected how I think most probably Republican women feel. We know that in the midterms, that issue moved a lot of women voters who might normally have voted you know, to the right. They voted to the left. There's no question that that issue is going to influence the uh, 24 presidential election. She was also fiscally conservative, which it's interesting to see that strong voice because that's what I talked to Mick Mulvaney. Of course, he served with her in South Carolina, but we were talking about inflation. We talked about... Uh, you know, the Trump administration spending. And he said, you know, if inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, right, there's all this Washington spending that has, you know, led up to this moment. And he said at one point they were in a meeting and a Republican senator said, no one has ever lost for spending money. Right. And so that's the mindset that a lot of, you know, these folks have. I could see her message appealing to that 
moderate woman who wants mm-hmm. to hear someone say, you know, the truth. She also gave Vivek the best slap. Did she school <laughs> him or what? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, if you asked me, that's probably my favorite moment of the night because I haven't seen a lot of Vivek, Vivek, I'm not sure the, how, how, how he pronounces it. Vivek, uh, it, Vivek. Vivek like cake. So, <laughs> yes. The, um, but, you know, we've seen in the last week or so, the last couple of weeks, as he's gotten more and more attention in the media, he's sort of tripped up a little bit here and there. But when she turned to him and said, you know, it, it's obvious you have no foreign policy experience. And, and she went through that entire exchange with him. I really felt like, you know, good. She, I, she is the strongest voice on the stage right now. And she's a woman. Like, I, I love that, that, but the audience didn't love it. They didn't love that she was pushing back on him. The voters on election day aren't going to love that she pushed back on him. There's no sense in the Republican Party that isn't it great that we have a strong woman who might become the first woman president. Her strength and her experience is completely lost on the Republican Party. And we see that reflected in the polls. I think Nikki Haley absolutely could stand a chance if she would get the donor's attention in the Republican Party, because she has done this before and she could be organized. I mean, Vivek, as much enthusiasm as he has, he'd have to get the people to actually show up at the polls. And we've seen that's a challenge. I mean, by then, (laughs) who knows where his star is on the... But Haley seems more dedicated and like slow uh, progression path. And so the question is, will the donors come behind her? Right. And and my answer is, I don't think that they will. You know, it's kind of a vicious circle. The donors want to put their money with the candidate that they think will win, not the candidate they think might be able to win or can win, you know. And um, and it's when she and they also donors tend to really look at polls and don't always embrace the understanding that the polls in August of this year mean nothing about what could or could, will or won't happen in August of next year. And so it's really hard for a candidate. And you would think somebody with like Nikki Haley, who has the identity that she has, who has the stature that she brings to the, to the stage, would be able to you know, get more attention from the donors. But I just think that they're looking at Donald Trump. Doug Burgum was the other one who I thought, you know, his little funny line on they didn't mean for me to really break my yeah, leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he seemed to want to talk about substance. And though right. he does not have like significant foreign policy experience as governor of North Dakota, as a business executive with Microsoft, he actually did do a number of meetings with Chinese officials mm-hmm. and with people of, you know, the international community. He's someone who built a company in North Dakota. What do you think about Doug Burgum for that independent voter? Well, I love that about him. And I'm somebody who, you know, almost always wants to see a governor first as the nominee because they've got that leadership experience, that executive experience of having to run the whole operation. But I I don't see, and, and one of the things I loved about Governor Burgum was just, he was so real. 
You know, he was laid back. He was real. He wasn't acting. He didn't have all these memorized lines that, you know, are, that he was hoping, you know, would be quoted in the media and that kind of thing. I, I think he was sincere and he was real. But I think that he, you know, like many other on that stage, just isn't going to be able to build the momentum. And even if he could, you know, you and I are sitting here talking about how great it is to have somebody who understands business and the interaction that we have to have with foreign countries, you know, uh, when it comes to trade and all of these sorts of things. But we had a nominee who was that. We had Mitt Romney who was extremely successful in business, who was a successful executive, you know, in Massachusetts. And we could not get a certain group of the base committed enough to him for them to turn out on election day in November. So that makes me look back and think the base of our party has not been looking for the same thing that I've been looking for, for a lot longer than Donald Trump. You know, with my dad, I remember he had problems with Mitt Romney because he thought he was like a prep school kid. Mm -hmm. And with Doug Burgum, he's a little different than that. I mean, he is more of like a North Dakota homegrown, likes to talk about betting the farm. He did have a farm to bet. And he brought a lot of jobs back to the state. He also has access to cash because he met with Steve Ballmer. Right. You still don't think he could compete in this GOP? I don't think he can compete in this GOP. And I'll, and I'll tell you why, because it's the same reason that I think 99% of, I, I'm not, I don't think anybody on that stage is going to be able to compete in this base of GOP primary voters. They've been very clear, and we all keep trying to convince ourselves that it could be different. And I'm somebody who believes that no candidate is truly unbeatable. But the Republican voters have made it very clear what they want. They like what Donald Trump is doing. They like his, what they see as his fight, as his you know refusal to back down, as his refusal to give in. They like that he will give them a story or a line, even if they know in their heart that it's untrue, but they'll give him a story that will justify them voting for him. He makes it okay for the worst of themselves to come out and be counted. Look at Ronna Romney McDaniel. Look at Kevin McCarthy. Look at Mitch McConnell. Look at every Republican state chairman in the country. They are fully embracing Trump. They have defended his crimes. They have defended his, when he's been convicted as being a sexual predator. They have defended him when he, you know, tried to launch an insurrection. They have defended him when he was impeached. You can go through the list. They've defended him when he tried to bribe a foreign leader to help him win an election. It goes on and on and on. There, anybody who has ever spoken up against him had to either choose not to run for reelection or got defeated in their primary. There is nobody who has spoken up against him strongly and clearly who has been able to hold on to their leadership position in the party. In terms of the delegates, mm -hmm. which is really how it's decided, he's been working a long time on shoring up the advantage in terms of delegate distribution. I haven't been following that intricately inside of the party. But again, when the time comes, the way that delegates work and the way that the party system works is so controlled 
by party leadership. I, I remember at the convention in 2016, there were many of us who just wanted to be heard, who just wanted our anti-Trump vote to be counted, understanding that he was the guy, he had the votes, he had it, you know, he had the right number. We just wanted to be heard. And that was not allowed. That was shut down by the party. They cannot tolerate um, disagreement. They cannot, you know, tolerate, you know, having any sort of a, a strong expression against Trump. And the same thing will happen again. It, it just it won't be allowed. And that is, you know, again, I was in a leadership position in the party, but that is one of the issues with party politics that has sort of led us to where we are today. If Trump's the guy, it's Trump's going to be the guy. They're going to embrace him. They're going to they're not going to, you know, count or include the voices that don't support him and they will come out, you know, fully and strongly behind him. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. In 2016, when we were approaching the election day and um the Billy Bush tape came out where Donald Trump talked about when you're famous, you can do whatever you want, you can grab them, you can kiss them, you can do anything. And it was it exploded and everybody in the world thought this has to be the end of Donald Trump right there. There's no way that a a reputable, honorable party, political party would stand behind him. And we were all talking to each other and texting each other. Uh, several of us were reaching out to the chairman, to Reince Priebus. And at, at about 11 o'clock that night, I had a phone conversation with Reince where he was saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And I said, let's at least, let's just call a meeting of the whole group of the, you know, the RNC members. We've done it before. We have the technology. Let's just get on the phone and at least let people ha have their say and call for a vote as to whether or not the party should denounce Trump. I said, you know, as well as I do, that vote will fail, that the likelihood is that the majority will still stand with them. I said, but let's do that so we can send a message to the world that this thing that he said on the bus does not represent Republican principles. And he said, we, we can't do that. We just can't do that. Like he, it, it, he wouldn't even consider it. He's like, it, ju it just can't be done. The party is farther down that path today than it was in 2016. They won't allow dissent. That's so frustrating. It's discouraging. Right. Because yeah, yeah it's discouraging. So I know that you were trying to figure out what do I do with my voice during this time because Trump wasn't the leader of what you wanted to see in the Republican Party. And you had for some time embraced the Lincoln Project. Yes. Yep. You were heavily involved, as I understand, mm -hmm. co-founder. I was I was one of the original founders. I was with them throughout the cycle, throughout the 2020 cycle. And um, and to be on, I'm very proud of what I accomplished with you know my part of the team at the Lincoln Project, and the the purpose of the Lincoln Project at its founding <laughs> was an honorable one. The majority of the people that worked at the Lincoln Project were outstanding individuals who were really committed to defeating Donald Trump, who had very sincere. And, you know, inspirational commitment to preserving democracy, this profound, you know, love of country and wanting to defeat Donald Trump at the polls. For me, I really believed that if Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, that that would sort of not magically solve the problem, but that that would, you know, really change 
the world of politics, that it would change the Republican Party, that it would change the how the leadership looked at it, because it would give you a legitimate opportunity now to say, he lost, he's in the past, let's look at the future, who's going to be our next, you know, strongest person to run. And instead, what happened was Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and the Freedom Caucus, and then one senator after another, all these House members all got in line behind this truly conspiratorial, dangerous idea that the election had been stolen. And we all know where that led. We all know what happened from there. I formally left the Republican Party about a month after the 2020 election. And I've said a hundred times, it wasn't because of who Trump is. I always knew who Trump was. It was because of the way that the party leadership responded to and participated in this effort to falsely overturn an election and to block the transfer of power. And that's the truth, right, is that they were manipulating processes to take people's votes away from them and overturn them. Nobody should want that to happen. Right after the election in November, I went out to Kansas and I was on stage with Matt Schlapp. It was just the two of us. <laughs> For those who don't aren't with us, we're both shaking our heads. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Matt Schlapp is the head of the Conservative Political Action Committee yeah. and has certainly come under his own scrutiny since we were on that stage together. But Matt Schlapp and I were sitting in Kansas in front of a audience of different business leaders in Kansas. And, um, you know, my Mom and dad went to the same Catholic school that he graduated from, but the, my mom and dad got pregnant in Catholic school, and they, my mom was kicked out, and then my dad dropped out. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, Matt and I have lived very different experiences. So, you know, there's a family connection there, and I, you know, see Matt off stage, and he asks me, are you going to go back in? to the administration. And I wasn't. I wasn't planning to. I had moved my family to California after I was part of the Obama administration mm -hmm. and love, you know, many of my former colleagues as much as I do. I don't have it in me right now because I have my child right. and I'm not going to serve Joe Biden right now. And then we went on stage. And I made a joke because we had this really nice American flag. And I said, oh, we have a better advanced team than Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> and he laughs and, you know. <laughs> and then he goes on this rant, Jennifer, about how the election was stolen <sighs> and how, you know, there wasn't any, you know, truth to Biden's victory. And I was sitting there thinking, you just asked me if I was going to go back in. Mm -hmm. And... Because he knew the truth. Yes, he knows yes, the truth. Yes, of course he does. And I was just kind of like, what are you saying? But Matt Schlapp and the dozens or hundreds like him who were informed adults who understood the process, understood the system, they knew that it was this, the election was not stolen. They knew there was not that level of fraud anywhere, and they advanced it for their own personal purposes. He didn't advance it because he thought the, the Republican Party had stood on some great principle he wanted to protect. Matt Schlapp advanced it because it financially and, and in power benefited Matt Schlapp. 
That is why every single Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, the pillow guy, you know, all of them, they benefited from this um, personally by advancing this. And they truly misinformed and misled so many people who did not have the experience or the access to the information that they had and convinced them of the truth of something that was false. They're financially benefiting from this. Yes. They're using people's frustrations and they themselves are becoming, you know, icons and wealthy and doing all sorts of George Santos-like behavior. And that we should not condone regardless of party. It's a fraud and it needs to stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would like to believe that the Republican Party is changing, that they're embracing greater diversity, that they're open to, you know, policies and communities that are built on a, a, a more diverse foundation. I don't see it in the data, and I sure don't see it in my personal experience. And they have to take that path if they want to survive. We have so many problems, you know, we have to address, and we're busy fighting with one another. Mm-hmm. I think to your point on the Lincoln Project, you know, maybe at its core, when you were involved, the goal was to call out your own and your own party. Um, there were problems. There, there were very, very serious problems with the Lincoln Project, most of which came to sight, came to understanding after the election. Um, and I don't want to try to sweep that under the rug. That's the truth. And, you know, I've never done an interview where I really got into the details of it or anything else. I was pretty open in in my exchanges with them at the time that it happened. We need more efforts like what the Lincoln Project was supposed to be at its core. We need more efforts where Republicans and Democrats and independents and diverse ethnic backgrounds, diverse socioeconomic backgrounds where people are coming together to defeat what is clearly a definable, visible threat and to do so with an understanding of what it is we're fighting to preserve. So I, I'm not I don't my, I'm not a fan of the Lincoln Project. I'm not a fan of the Lincoln Project today. You know, I know a little bit too much about who they are and, and things like that now. But I do want to see the idea of Americans coming together to preserve what our founding fathers at least aspired for us to be. We're not perfect and we're never going to be, but to preserve the idea that we are always moving forward, trying to be better than we were yesterday. And and it's not enough to just do that in our personal lives. We have to do that politically as well and try to persuade. You know, one of my primary responsibilities when I was at the Lincoln Project was trying to persuade what we called soft Republicans um, or Republican leading independents, persuade them that it was okay to put your party loyalty, your partisan preferences aside and look at this vote as being about something bigger than that. Do you think you can persuade them for a Biden 2.0? I do. I do. Because like you, I have faith in our country. And um, and I think that sometimes we get caught up in the challenges and the burdens of life. I think there are a lot of people who really suffer trying to take care of their families, trying to get the health care and economic stability and all these different things that we bring home to the kitchen table with us every night, you know, to get their lives under control. I think, and but I think that even 
in that experience, as heavy as that can be, that if you sit down and talk to them face to face, they want the same things that you and I want for their community and for the world. If it was Nikki Haley, would you devote your energy to electing Nikki Haley? No. I like Nikki Haley. I have a lot of past respect for her. But at this point in my life, I've come to the understanding that I cannot support anybody who engaged in protecting Donald Trump and and refusing to take action that could have been preventative when they had the opportunity to do so. Nikki Haley was silent after she left the ambassadorship. I understand we want good people in an administration that's led by a a lunatic like Donald Trump. And, and I believe that Donald Trump is genuinely mentally ill. I don't mind calling him a lunatic, but she's had too many opportunities that have passed. How many opportunities has she had just in this election alone to call out Donald Trump? Every time her answer is, if he's the nominee, I'll support him. I can't vote for that. So you don't think she's decisive enough? I, I don't think she understands just how dangerous Donald Trump is. If she's willing to support him, if he becomes the nominee, that's a problem. I have met people who worked in the Trump administration, and they will say, like people, great people, who will say, I'm not going to say anything negative about Donald Trump because the change I wanted to bring about, he supported. Donald Trump is genuinely dangerous to the personal, individual security of every American citizen as well as to the security of our country and our democratic ways. There's nothing that you can tell me that we will get from Donald Trump that will make me say, okay, that's a good trade-off. That was Jennifer Horn, the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party. It was really interesting to hear her perspective because, again, women are going to be key to this election and data shows they have increasingly left the Republican Party. So I wanted to know what could win her back. Clearly, Nikki Haley knows this, and whether she could or could not win them back is still very much up in debate. But the other thing that'll be key is whether Nikki Haley gets the money and the oxygen that she needs to actually compete in this nomination if she is going to win. We'll continue to check in with a lot of different women who have different perspectives on this election as it shapes up, one in which we may be dealing with the same players at the top of the ticket. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and yet one in which I really believe we need to press advance. If you are enjoying Press Advance, leave us a review. Reach out on social media. I'm at Johanna Masca, and let us know who you want to hear from as we move forward. These episodes of Press Advance are produced by Situation Room Studios and are available anywhere you get your podcasts.